So uh, I am a birthday person. Uh, yes, shout out to the birthday people who really, yes, we can be proud about that. I like to celebrate my birthday on my birthday. We can do other things throughout the rest of the week and the month, that's fine, but please believe we're going to be getting up on my birthday to celebrate. Um, different people have different uh, uh, opinions on that, but one of the things that our family has started to do, it's a brand new ritual in our family that we started a couple years ago, and it's this. At some point in the birthday dinner, we go around and do something called affirmations. Now, an affirmation is truth-telling to the person about the good that you see in them. A number of years ago, I was introduced to this, and I started to think about how many times are people saying the kindest things to people at their funerals? And this is an opportunity to tell it to them in their face, and it's always a truly beautiful experience. Each year, for each person in our family, we go around the room and we get to look them in the eye and tell them the beauty and the good that we see in them. And every single time we do it, it's, I'm always reduced to tears. It doesn't, make me, it doesn't take a lot to make me cry, but anyway, I'm always reduced to tears and how beautiful this ritual is. Now, I know that people in my family love me. I know my parents love me. I know my brother loves me. I think my wife loves me. <laughs> I know she loves me, y'all. I know she loves me, y'all. But when I get to experience the ritual of affirmations, I get to feel the love. You know what? We talk about the love of God at Renaissance a lot. We talk about the love of God in so many different ways. The gospel song that you might have been singing on your way into service today talks about the love of God, and that is good to talk about the love of God. But God wants you to do more than just talk about his love and his grace. God wants you to feel it. And so... Throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, God has given us different rituals, things that are much more meaningful than our birthday celebrations, things that are meant to make you feel the love of God. Two of those rituals are sacraments in the New Testament, uh, communion and baptism. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a ritual action undertaken by the church that are understood as visible signs of invisible divine grace. So God's grace in your life is invisible. You can't see it. But God gives us sacraments, things like communion that we take and baptism that we are immersed in so that you and I could feel, so that we can see, so that we can have a picture of what his grace truly looks like. Now, what is grace? We can spend the next two hours talking about what it is, and we would barely be scratching the surface. I don't know that I have a perfect definition for what it is, uh, Jesus talks a lot about grace, but most of the time when you see grace, it's through an account or a story in Scripture where Jesus interacts with people graciously. Now, we experience grace in a number of ways in our life today. Um, that credit card bill from Capital One that you were late on paying, you paid it within the grace period, so there's no penalty. And I think at a fundamental level, grace is when you owe something and then you're not obligated to pay it. But grace is much bigger than Capital One could ever do for you. Grace is something that's meant to change your life. Grace comes after you. You know, one of the best stories I know about Grace is a friend of mine who is a pastor now, but he wasn't always a pastor. He wasn't always someone who would stand on the stage and talk about the goodness of God. Once upon a time, he found his life to be spiraling out of control in the worst of ways. You see, he grew up in a house with his dad who was a pastor, 
and his father was a really straight-laced pastor in a small town. My friend did everything he could do to run as far away from God as possible. He got hooked on drugs, real drugs. He ended up incarcerated, and he was committed to a life that was as far away from God as possible. One day when he was getting out of juvie, the terms of his release was that he had to wear an ankle bracelet, and if he left his parents' home, he would go back to jail. But there was one problem. While he was in juvie, he got addicted to cigarettes, but his father, more than anything, absolutely hated cigarettes. And when he got out of jail, he was sitting at home craving a kick, and his father started to notice that eventually this boy is going to bolt and go in the wind because he's really going to go after these cigarettes. So one day, the father does something that surprises everything, even himself. He goes to the grocery store. Now, this is a pastor of a church of 1,000 people in a town of about 10,000 people. So one in 10 people in, a, in the whole town go to this man's church, a very small, conservative town. So the father goes to the grocery store, small talks the cashier and says, hey, where are the cigarettes? The cashier is surprised. Pastor, is this going to be a sermon prop or something? Like, what do, you, what do you want? He says, no, I need them for me. Don't worry about why I'm, I'm going to get them. The pastor goes and he buys the cigarettes. This man carries the thing he hates the most through the parking lot in front of everybody to see in the search of the one he loves the most, his son. His son, my friend, the pastor, is scouring through the bags, looking for some snacks and some chips to munch on, and at the top of the bag, he sees the box of cigarettes. Immediately, he breaks down. He realized something that his father was hoping that he would notice, that there is nothing in all of life that can keep me from you. And if I have to endure the thing that I hate, I'll do it in the pursuit of the one that I love. That's grace. God's grace in your life is more than just excusing you from doing wrong. There's, here's how one scripture writer, Paul, says it in, in the Bible. Paul says, God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus carry our sin, the thing that we hated the most, to the cross in pursuit of us. That is grace. That's meant to humble you. That's meant to transform and shape your entire relationship. And that is meant to be more than a theological concept that you feel uh, on Sunday mornings between 11.30 and 12.40 um, in the afternoon. And so how do we feel grace? Well, one of the ways that we feel it is through the Holy Spirit making God's word alive to us in our life. And when we read the pages of scripture, we will feel it. Other times, it's through these sacraments that God has given us so that we can feel the tangibleness of his, of his grace, of his works in our life. So physical things really matter to God. There's one scripture in Joshua 4 where, Joshua, where God is talking to his children who he has just freed. And he says, listen, I want you to pick up some smooth stones from the river that you have crossed through. Because when your kids ask you, what are these stones about? I want you to remind them that these are the physical reminder of what God has done to free you. And so today I want to talk about a sacrament called baptism. It is a physical reminder of a spiritual truth. 
of what God has done to free us. And so it's a theme all throughout the New Testament. And I actually want to turn to an Old Testament text today that I think is going to help us to understand baptism. It's going to help us to understand Christianity as a whole. It's from 2 Kings 5, verses 1 through 14, about a man named Naaman and Elisha. Here's how it starts. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Pay attention to that. Aram had gone on raids and brought back uh, from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of this skin disease. And the disease they're talking about is leprosy. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of, of Israel had said. Therefore, the king of Aram said, Go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Translation, that's a lot of money back in the day. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes. And this is something that people did when they were deeply distressed and asked, Am I God? killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease? Recognize that he is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So I want you to picture this. This dude who is a commander in the army, he comes with his entire motorcade to this small house where this prophet named Elisha lives. This guy comes with money in the bag. Um, He's a person of extreme importance, and he's a person also of military importance, which means that Elisha had to know that if I talk reckless to this guy, he can end it for me. So Naaman is at the front door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha, he doesn't even go outside. He sent him a messenger, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. But Naaman, he's tight. He's like, yo, I was telling myself, here's the narrative that Naaman had about what was going to happen. Go wash seven times. I'm sorry. Um, I was telling myself, he will surely come out Stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand all over the place and he's going to cure the disease. So Naaman had an understanding and expectation of what God was going to do. Uh, He was going to come out and make this big bombastic show and this is how he was going to heal him. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. So I want you to imagine this. Essentially what um, Naaman is saying is, this guy is asking me to go in the Hudson River. I'm not doing that, bro. (laughs) There's much cleaner bodies of water. So he turns around, he leaves angry and upset. But his servants approached him and said, my father, 
If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he only tells you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Now, this story is a profound one, and more than this story being about dermatology, this story is about you and and me. This story is about Jesus is the one who is the one who heals us, and us who are the ones who are in need of healing. Now, for those of you who are new to Scripture and new to the Bible and new to church, you might have heard that the Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth. That is the worst description of the Bible imaginable. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you at all. You are not the centerpiece. You are not the central figure, the character. You and I are uh, bystanders on the sideline. The Bible is about Jesus, and Jesus has made some pretty drastic claims about himself in all of the Bible. Here is one of the biggest claims that Jesus has made in Luke 24. Jesus says this, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then it says this, And beginning with Moses, so these are the books, the early books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus essentially is saying this. Jesus is talking to two men on the road to Emmaus, and he's saying, everything in all of this Bible is about me. Now, listen, if you're ever talking to any faith leader, pastor, anybody else who starts talking that the Bible is about them, I want you to turn and run in the opposite direction as fast as you can. Jesus is essentially saying that everything in the Bible, including this story of Naaman, is about him. It's not about, uh, it's not about just this one uh, piece of dermatology. It is about him. It's meant to point us to him. Later, in John 5... John 5, 39, it says this. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. So Jesus is saying all of the scriptures testify about him. And so this story is meant to point our eyes to Jesus. Now, so leprosy here is a physical representation. So how is this story meant to point our attention towards Jesus? Leprosy here is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. It's what the Bible calls sin. That you and I have all been infected with something that is deep and requires outside intervention for for us to be healed. Now, I do want to give one quick caveat before um, we start talking about how leprosy and sin have similarities and how it's meant to sharpen our focus and understand Jesus better, um, sickness does not equal sin. So if you are struggling with sickness, chronic illness, it doesn't mean that it's your fault. There's one scripture in the Bible where this man who is blind is brought to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, whose fault is it that this man is blind? And he says, nobody's fault. His sickness is for the glory of God. And so if you are sick, if you are battling chronic illness, uh, I am not saying at all that your sickness is a result of 
any activity that you have done or not done. If it was true that we would get physically sick based on all of our sin, then every one of us in this room would be sick. It does, though, however, represent a theme in the Bible that leprosy shows us, and this story shows us what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus. It shows us our need for Jesus, and it shows us our inability on our own. And so um, there's a many effects of leprosy that function like uh, sin and sin that functions like leprosy. So leprosy and sin, they both start from the inside out. Leprosy does not start on your skin. Um, it comes from being sneezed on or something like that. And leprosy could live in your body for years and years until finally one day being um, noticed on your skin. But by the time it shows up on your skin, it had already for a long time been in your system. Now, for those of you who are unaware with leprosy, it's not a disease that is common uh, around these parts. Leprosy was something that deformed people, and it would immediately cast you out in society. And it was something that was very grotesque to, to look at. But what we learn about leprosy and what we learn about sin is this. Before you can see any manifestation of anything in someone's life, it had first been growing on the inside of them for a really long time. It starts from the inside out. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 6.45. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That comment that you made to your coworker, it's not because she's late to work or she was messed up with the assignment. The way you erupted at your kids, it's not because your kids are crazy, although they probably are. The interaction you had with your roommate, the dispute you had and you said some things, it's because, here's what Jesus is saying, the reason you said that is because it's something on the inside of you. You erupted with anger because anger lives inside of you. And so one of the illustrations we use all the time at Renaissance is if I were to take off the top of this water bottle and start shaking it, and I would ask the question, well, why does water come out of it? And people would say, oh, it's because you are, you're shaking it. That's not the answer. The reason water comes out is because there's water inside. If I shake an empty bottle, nothing's going to come out. Here's what Jesus is trying to show us, and here's what God is trying to show us through the scripture. We need to resist blaming and um, not taking ownership for the deep conditions that are going on in our life. Jesus is showing us, and Scripture is showing us here, that we have a condition in our life that starts from the inside out. And since it comes from the inside out, we need a work that happens from the inside out. Secondly, leprosy and sin, they cut us off from relationships with other people. If you were a leper, probably the saddest thing that would happen to you is that you would immediately be banished from the community. Because since it was a communicable and... Uh, a communicable disease that was very contagious, they didn't want you just around in the community. Now, having lived through COVID, we all understand this reality. It was more than six feet. It was more like six years away from everybody. And you would be forced to live in a leprous colony. Now, here's what I know to be true. What the Bible tells us about what sin does, even though it looks appealing in our life, is sin separates us. Sin separates us from people. Sin separates us from God. Early in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve, our earliest four parents, ate of the forbidden fruit, immediately what you see is a separation between them and God. Sin doesn't just separate us from God, it also separates us from other people. 
You know, I get a chance to talk to a lot of couples who are going through different things, and the most common denominator to every single disruption in every single marriage is this, selfishness. People choose them over their union. And because they choose them themselves selfishly and sinfully, there's always going to be separation in their relationship. Sin brings separation to us. Thirdly, leprosy and sin numb you. The more it progresses, the more numb you get. This is a very sobering truth. So one of the most devastating effects of leprosy was that you lose feeling. If you're brave enough to go home and Google leprosy, don't do it when you're at work uh, or while you're eating, you will probably see a lot of people missing limbs. Now, why will you see people missing limbs? Scientists have discovered that the reason that people with leprosy lost fingers and toes and their noses wasn't because the disease caused them to fall off, but rather they lost feeling in them so they would burn themselves badly and not feel it. They would break a toe and keep walking on it like it was normal, or a finger, until it would just uh, fall off. It's very nasty stuff, I know. Scripture says that sin is just like that. The more it progresses in your life, the more numb you get to it. The person who was the most comfortable with lying lies a lot. Because the more you do it, the easier it will become to do. You know, there's a scripture in Hebrews 3 and 13 that says this, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Here's what the scripture writers are telling us, that sin, just like leprosy, it hardens us so that you cannot feel the sharpness of conviction from the Holy Spirit. And you'll be going around your day thinking nothing is wrong when God, the Holy Spirit, is trying to scream at you and get your attention and you lost feeling because of our decisions. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about, I talk about my family a lot. My grandmother was a sharecropper, and that really bugs me out when I think about it. When people talk about, like, systemic racism in America, I'm like, this is my, like, my grandmother. It's not, like, 500 years ago. This is my grandmother that used to come to my house all the time. And I'll never forget one time she was sewing, and when she would come, she would, like, fix some shirts and stuff for us. And I was always just amazed that she never used a thimble you know what a thimble is, those things that you put on your, your thumb to stop the needle from piercing you? Because for decades, she was a sharecropper in Ripley, Tennessee. And for, for picking cotton for decades, what that does to you is it hardens your fingers. At a certain point, your fingers stop bleeding, and they develop calluses on them so you lose feeling of it. So she'd be sewing, and needle would be going in and out, and she wouldn't feel anything. This is what the Bible says sin does to us. The more you practice it, the more it hardens you so that you lose feeling of it. And listen, Jesus is bigger than just, hey, stop doing this or start doing this. It's, it's much bigger than that. However, one of the things that we always want people to soberly take and to understand is this. If you hear an invitation from Jesus to stop doing something or to start doing something, with all your might, with all of your might, go in that direction of obedience to Jesus immediately because the penalty for disobedience is to lose feeling. And later, you will find yourself not bothered by the thing that would have horrified you years ago, not because somehow, suddenly, it has become okay to do, but because simply you've lost feeling. Now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus can restore feeling to you, but it's going to be through our acts of obedience to follow him. You know, one of the ways we talk about faith in Jesus is what is Jesus' invitation to you right now? What is his invitation for you to do? 
We never want theology to stay in your head. We want you to feel the invitation and to act on it, knowing that Jesus will, uh, he is our good doctor who wants to restore feeling and make us whole and clean. So this story teaches us a tremendous amount about the gospel. Um, first and foremost, and also about and how we see uh, and understand baptism. So first and foremost, how, what does this teach us about the gospel? It teaches us that, this story teaches us that you cannot cure sin on your own. So once Naaman became aware of his condition, he knew that he needed outside intervention. Naaman knew that he couldn't just read a book. He couldn't just like pick up a, a pamphlet on how to cure leprosy. That wouldn't do anything for him. Naaman had to go to his higher up, the king, and send a letter to another king. He had to go through all of these channels just to try to get access to healing because he was aware that he couldn't cure anything on his own. Now, a lot of people think that Christianity is just about trying harder or doing better. My brother, my sister, even if you've been rocking with Jesus for 20 years, it is not about trying harder. It's about Jesus, the good shepherd, the good doctor who can make us clean. When you find yourself dismayed with your life, when you find yourself convicted about your life in one way or another, the cure is not to be more disciplined. The cure is to go to the one who can heal you and say, Jesus, I surrender. I, I want to build my life on you. Would you make me clean? Secondly, Naaman had to let go of control, understanding, and entitlement. My, my, my. Here's what Christianity and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is. You need to let go of control, you need to let go of understanding everything, and you need to let go of entitlement. Now, when I say understanding, I don't mean to check your brain at the door. I don't mean you shouldn't be a thinking person. The Bible says we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. God wants you to study and show yourself approved. God wants you to research he wants you to do all of these different things. However, if you follow Jesus long enough, there will come a point when Jesus calls you to do something, maybe it's baptism, that you don't understand. And there will be where your discipleship starts. Here's what we see in verses 11 through 13. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself, he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand all over the place and cure the disease. So Naaman had an expectation of what it would be like to be in relationship with God, and it didn't happen. Aren't Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I at least wash in those and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. If we're not careful, we'll be like Naaman initially to think like, well, wouldn't it make more sense for me to live like this? When we say that to ourselves, we're not trying to follow Jesus, we're trying to follow ourselves. Now, what are the calls of discipleship? We went through this in our series on discipleship is this. Here's what it means. It just means following Jesus to the next step. It doesn't mean you see the whole staircase. It just means you have just enough faith to take the next step in obedience to follow what Jesus says. And over the years, so many times I've talked to people, and so many people have not wanted to get baptized simply because... They didn't understand why. And here's the third point. Sometimes you have to do what you don't want to do. Verse 14. So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. 
Now, it doesn't say that Naaman had a change of heart where he said, you know what? Yeah, I will go down to the Jordan. That sounds good, like a good idea. He went reluctantly, but he still went. I don't know how God wants us to move throughout our day and our week. I don't know what the invitation is for you, but I do know this. If you want to follow Jesus, the real Jesus, and not the Jesus of our imagination, then there will come times when we have to do something that we don't want to do. Now, baptism for some people is going against yourself. Why do I have to get up in front of all these people and make a declaration in this PS76 water? No guarantees what's in that. We prayed over it, though, yeah. We're going to put some, holy, some oil in there, too. It's clean enough. Because God told us to do it. And God will do things in our obedience to him that we will never experience with a thousand years of study. I heard one pastor say, you will learn more with one act of obedience than you will with an entire degree of seminary. And so you see this in the text. All throughout the New Testament, Scripture is very pretty clear. This tells us if you place your faith in Jesus, you should get baptized. Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, Go, therefore, into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts, you see Jesus' disciples take Jesus' words to heart. And immediately, whenever people find faith in Jesus, they immediately, the first thing they do is they get baptized. In Acts 2, it says, When they heard this, people were hearing preaching, and they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I've learned over the last number of years. It's not understanding. It's not always um, having a, a full grasp of why God calls you to do things. But Sometimes it's just simply the simple, ordinary, and repeated act of obedience brings about change. Here's what we've seen in the story of Naaman. It's not complicated, y'all. It's the simple, ordinary, and repeated act of obedience that brought about change in his life. It wasn't complicated, although it was difficult for him to bring himself to do it. It wasn't fantastical. It wasn't some great spiritual exercise, and it was repeated. He had to baptize, dip himself seven times in the water, and that is what brought about change. And if you want to follow Jesus faithfully, whether it's getting baptized or any other thing in your life. Here's what it is. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. It is the simple, ordinary, and repeated acts of obedience that will bring about change in your life. You do not have to go to some conference where people are laid out on the floor, rolling around, doing laps around the church. It is the simple, repeated, ordinary acts of obedience that will bring about change. You want to know how you can get real change in your life? Forgive someone. I need to hear more. No, don't take the pillars class. Forgive someone. Forgive them. Learn to forgive them. I'm not saying let them back in your life and let them just have a blank check to do whatever. But go through the simple, repeated act of forgiveness. And you'll learn a whole lot about Jesus. You'll learn a whole lot about grace. And it will bring about change in your life. And so it's not the simple act itself. It It is the obedience that says to God, I'm just going to do whatever you tell me to do. 
And today we get a chance to celebrate with so many people um, this simple, ordinary act of obedience called baptism that's going to bring us renewal. One of the things I love about this verse in verse 14 is the renewal that Jesus promises. Verse 14, at the end of it, it says, So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times according to the command of the man of God. And then it says, Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. And here's the gospel, y'all. When my oldest son was first born, I was like just enamored by how smooth his skin was. If you've ever held a small baby, it's amazing. I'm like, there's no way in the world that these ashy elbows will ever feel like that boy's skin. It just felt so pure and beautiful. Here's what the scripture says that God did in Naaman's life. He restored Naaman to that of the skin of a small boy. And that, again, is an analogy for what God wants to do in your life. Through your repeated ordinary acts of obedience, I don't know what that is. God wants to restore you. God wants to make your life look like something that is beautiful. God wants to make your life look like something that others would marvel at. But it's not going to come through learning more things by itself, but rather the simple, ordinary acts of obedience. God wants to bring us renewal.